The following sermon is from Faith Bible Church, located in Murrieta, California. More information about Faith Bible Church is available at www.faith-bible.net. Worry, anxiety, worry, anxiety are so much a part of our lives now that there's even a foundation to be humorous about it. And so here are some of the new anxieties that cause people to be anxious today from the Babylon Bee. Yeah. (laughs) Talking to a person anxiety. What you just did when you've got to talk to a person face to face. Anxiety. We think it's fellowship, but new people are traumatized, right? (laughs) The gif anxiety. That means what gif do I send my friend today? Or my, one of my favorites is the anxiety anxiety. That's when you don't have anything to worry about. You're not anxious about anything, so now you're anxious because you're not anxious. You know what I mean? Anxiety anxiety. There's everything is cancer anxiety. Anytime you feel bad like you just ate 10 tamales, and all of a sudden you're like, I feel bad. That's got to be cancer, right? So you're anxious about that. There's annihilation anxiety when you don't believe in God and you think death is the end of your existence and your consciousness, rendering all of life terrifying and devoid of meaning, that's a big anxiety. And then, of course, when your favorite stuff wears out anxiety, right? Guys, you know that one shirt that you're trying to hang on to and she's trying to get rid of? You know what I mean? Those shoes, ladies, that fit perfectly but they're starting to wear out, car breaks down, pets get old, and we get anxious... In fact, possessions and our material wealth are often a cause of anxiety. And be honest, would you? All of us, to some degree, suffer and struggle with materialism. We do. With money, possessions, things. And Jesus knew that we would struggle with that. And He knew that we would worry about things. And that's why when you read your Bible you find so much discussion about it. John MacArthur says of the 38 parables of the New Testament, 16 are how we handle money. Christ said more about money and possessions than he did about heaven and hell together. In the Gospels, one out of every 10 verses deals with money and goods, 288 verses in all. In the Bible, there are more than 500 references about prayer, There are over 500 references about faith, but there are 2,000 references to wealth and possessions. Do you think the Lord knew that we would struggle? Sure. And no matter what country you're from, no matter what your background is, no matter what time you live, you need to hear what Jesus Christ has to say about your money and your possessions, and particularly your worry about those things. In fact, he says, don't worry. In fact, somebody said the difference between childhood and adulthood is financial worry, right? In fact, I would bet, and there's no question, that a top argument starter in your marriage is money. So what does Jesus say? We need to know. Open your Bibles, if you would, to Matthew chapter 6, verse 25 to 34. Take the outline and follow along with us as Jesus is in the midst of the greatest sermon that was ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount. And he is really trying to rip 
the external religion of his day, where everybody's trying to earn their way to heaven by keeping rules, all kinds of applications that the rabbis have come up with. And they're going to go, I'm going to be right with God. I'm going to get to heaven because I keep all these rules. And he's trying to strip that away from them and let them know that true faith is a matter of a transformed heart, that you're made new, that you're born again, that you express faith in Christ, you've surrendered to him because of a heart that wants to. And he is now in this sermon, in the series of, of tests. So write this down. Today is the test of trust. The test of trust. He wants you to know that when you're trusting him, you're manifesting that your heart has been transformed. When you're worrying and anxious about basic things in life and everything in life, you're manifesting a heart that is not transformed. Somebody who might be trying to earn their salvation, whereas somebody else who has been transformed has been given salvation by grace through faith. And so read aloud with me uh, just verse 33 and 34. I'm going to read the whole passage and then I'm going to have you join me at the end when Christ says, you know what's in your heart by the level of your trust. The level of your trust. Matthew 6, 25, it says, for this reason I say to you, do not be worried about your life as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them, and are you not worth much more than they? And who are you, and who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour or a single cubit to your life? You stretch it out. And why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow and they don't toil, they don't spin, and yet I say to you, not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the fields, which is alive today and tomorrow thrown into the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek all these things, for your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Read with me now. But seek first His kingdom and His righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow, for tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. In this paragraph, there are two main commands, and they form bookends, kind of, to the main emphasis. Normally, commands don't actually drive the text, but in this particular case, it lets us know what Christ is actually seeking from the people that he's talking to in that uh, wonderful place on the north end of the Sea of Galilee. And basically, he's basically challenging you two things. And the challenge is, in verse 25 is the first command, and verse 33 is the second command. Verse 25 is, do not worry. And in verse 33 is the second command, do seek the Lord first. A do not command and a do command. A flee this command and a pursue this command. He wants you to stop worrying and start seeking. Hey, if you get nothing from this morning, get this. If you really want to stop worrying, the main step for you is to start seeking. The way that we move away from worry 
is to pursue seeking his righteousness, seeking his kingdom. That's the main way. That's the point that he's telling you. And so don't lose that. Don't just stop worrying. Start pursuing. And you're not merely going to be stopping a bad habit. You're going to be building a new one. And he starts with, again, the don't, right? The stop. And what he wants you to do is stop worrying. Point number one in your outline, don't be worrying about your needs. Don't be worrying about your needs. Look at verse 25. For this reason, I say to you, do not be anxious for your life as to what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Is not life more than food and the body than clothing? Do not be anxious. Do not worry. The tense of it is stop worrying. Later on in verse 31, he tells us, if you're you know, don't start worrying. So in both cases, they're going, if you're worrying, stop it. And don't start it. Don't start it. You know what worrying's like? It's like a rocking chair, right? Gives you something to do, but you don't get anywhere, correct? Uh, the English word for worry is actually comes from a German word, which means to choke and to strangle. Strang- strangle. And so it's actually, worry is emotional strangulation, and it causes all kinds of problems in our life. So Jesus says, do not be anxious, verse 25, for life. Now, the life here is describing everyday existence, the the temporal, physical life that you have, eating, drinking, clothing, housing, everyday life. Stop worrying about your everyday life. And then he begins verse 25, did you catch it? The verse three words there, for this, what? Reason. That brings us back to verses 19 to 24 that we looked at last time. So let me review very quickly so you understand the full punch of this. He's basically saying earthly treasure is not what you want to bank your life on. It's corrupt. It blinds you. It blinds you to what God wants. So Jesus says you've got to choose between God and money. You can't have both. Earthly treasure is going to corrupt you. It's going to blind your spiritual vision. It's going to affect your spiritual life. And it ends up drawing you away from serving God. So he says, for this reason, therefore, verse 25, don't worry about those kind of things. Right? That should not be our preoccupation. You say, well, can I just worry about the important things? No. No. Verses 19 to 24. If you're a child of God, what did he say last week? You have a single goal. Single goal is to have treasure in where? Earth or heaven? Heaven. You have a single vision to seek God's purposes proclaimed and not to be detracted from that. And then you have a single master and that is to serve God and not wealth. So he really lays it out. Therefore, he says, then don't become preoccupied with the things of the world. So what things? Look what he says in verse 25. As to what you shall eat, what you shall drink, nor for your body as to what you shall put on. Some of you are saying, well, you know, I don't worry about that. I got two refrigerators at home loaded with food. I got a closet full of clothes. I got a wonderful house that I can go in and stay dry from the rain. I don't worry about any of that. If you lived during the time that Jesus actually preached this sermon, you would have a different response to what he's saying. And here it is. Imagine California without any modernization at all. We're just living in houses, but there's no pipes running everywhere. We're completely dependent on water and streams of water. And when the snows in our state aren't full, the streams drive up during the summer. Are you with me on this? That means then the crops don't grow. They burn. They die. When they die, you die. Right? You're linked to the weather. 
Your happiness is linked to the weather. Your provision, clothing, food, housing is linked to your circumstances. So when Jesus says, don't worry, this is a difficult and demanding command. Are you with me on that? That's what they had. How much more should we, who are massively wealthy in comparison, see worry as sin? Jesus adds at the end of verse 25, Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Have you ever heard somebody say, Is this all there is in life? (laughs) You know, it's interesting. Most of your non-Christian family, most of your non-Christian friends, they are massively consumed with their body, correct? That's the secular world, decorating it, fixing it up, painting it, clothing it, putting it in a nice car, protecting it in a nice house, stuffing it full of clothes, sitting in a nice chair, hanging jewelry on it, piercing, tattooing it, coloring the hair, soaking it in a tub, warming it in a shower, resting it in bed. The body is the end of all for the non-believer, but not for us. Life is not contained in this body. For us, life is contained in the very nature of God. Can I hear an amen to that? Are you ready? Have this half of the room said amen? I don't know what happened over here. What does that mean? Jesus said, to live is Christ. Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. Are you getting it? If we don't see Christ as life, if we don't see Christ is life, and we don't see life is Christ, we will pursue other things. Write it down. If we don't see life is Christ, we will seek other things. And Jesus says we can trust him to take care of those other things. And what he's going to do now is he's going to impress it with his promises, his providence, and his provision, and more, and he's going to give us four reasons why we shouldn't worry and why that crowd shouldn't worry by the Sea of Galilee. First in your outline is trust the Lord for your food since he takes care of the birds. He says, look at the birds of the air, verse 26, that they don't sow, they don't reap, they don't gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? When my boys were growing up, they never ever once thought, am I going to eat today? Is there going to be enough food for me today? Now, they did worry about whether it was something they liked or not, but they never worried about whether there was going to be food. They didn't worry about clothing. They knew that we would provide clothing. Now, they had certain desires on the style of clothing, and Gene and I, because of financial reasons, were totally into Italian, right? Wall la Marta, all right? So, understand... <laughs> You know, there were some challenges there, but they never wondered, would there be clothes? Would there be food? Are we going to have a house? Because that was all provided for them. I'm nothing compared to the faithfulness, the wisdom, the power of our Heavenly Father to supply us as His children with what we need. Amen to that? Making worry an insult to God who provides to the Father who provides. Jesus teaches you there's no need for you to worry. 
Because if the Lord would take birds and take care of them, certainly he's going to take care of you. Look at verse 26. He says, look at the birds of the air. And you forgot. You forgot Jesus is in the north side of the Sea of Galilee on a slope that is right over the lake. It's rippling water that's beautiful. There's a cool breeze going through. Uh, It is incredible acoustics. And you know, just like when we were out on the football stadium, that there's birds flying around. Remember, we used to have a hawk flying around, and I'm pouring my heart out. And everybody goes, look at the hawk, you know. <laughs> I'll never forget that. <laughs> Stop it! I wanted to get my gun out. <laughs> Jesus, the most incredible preacher that there ever was, the greatest that there ever was, he just points and says, look at them. Look at them, how they, they gather food. Right there, as they're listening, they're seeing it lived out. And look at the birds that they don't sow, neither do they reap, uh, nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Every bird who lives is living because God gave it life. And when God gives life to a bird, he doesn't say, well, now you gotta, now that you have life, figure out how to maintain it. He never says that. You never see birds loitering at 7-Eleven, having some smokes, going, we got to come up with a plan to stay alive. You know what I mean? They don't think that way. They don't have self-conscious cognitive processes, no ability to reason, but God planted in them an instinct, right? They have a divine capacity to find what's necessary to live, and the point is, is that God not merely creates life, but he sustains it. Even by giving them the instinct that he's given. He designed them to go after the food that they need. He designed them to do that. They don't indulge. They don't hoard. They don't build bigger nests. And they never, ever worry. Ever. It's only people who stockpile. People who hoard, who build bigger nests. And people only worry. Birds don't worry about where they're going to find their food. They just find it. And God provides it. And in verse 26, it finishes this way. Are you not worth much more than they? That is a theological statement. Are you ready for this? No bird was ever made in the image of God. You were. No bird is a joint heir with Jesus Christ for all eternity. You are as a Christian. No bird has a mansion in heaven. You do as a believer. And no bird has a Savior who chose him before the foundation of the world and died for him on the cross and suffered for his sins. But you do. And if God sustained the life of a bird, don't you think he's going to sustain you? That's what he's saying. Life is a gift from God. And if God gives you the greater gift, which is eternal life, don't you think he'll give you the lesser gift? Sustaining life with food? So don't worry. Stop worrying. Just like God provides for the bird through instinct, so God provides for people through labor and work. Now, your food probably going to be busting here, but birds act on the instinct and collect food, and men and women by labor collect food, but it is God who supplies the food with everything we need. Now, some of you are arguing in your head. You say, wait a minute, it was my ideas that got me where I am today. It was my creativity. Really? Really? Who gave you your mind? God could have made you a vegetable. Right? I mean, yeah, but everything I have because I worked hard. Right now, on the count of three, take a giant breath. Ready? One, two, three. 
Okay, that next breath is completely being held in the providence of God and you won't be able to take one unless he lets you. That's how much his providence is in charge. You need to realize that if God took his hand a blessing off your life, you wouldn't have the health you need to work or to live. You wouldn't have the mind you need to think and you wouldn't have anything that you have because God provides you with all those things. I think one way to look at it is when I was a kid, I had a great illustration of this. My dad used to take us backpacking at 10,128 feet. 10,000, really high up in the Sierras, called Vogelsang Camp in the High Sierras. And it was massively fun. And after later, I took a whole bunch of junior hires backpacking with an 85 pine pack because I was so worried about them dying, whatever. I remember my dad's pack was 85 to 90 pounds as well. And I remember it was his skill and it was his provision that made it so fun, that made it so livable. When we were cold, he'd make a fire, keep us warm, give us a bed. When we were hungry, he'd catch fish and cook them. When we were bored, he'd have fun things for us to do. That's our Heavenly Father and what he does for his children. Don't worry. Don't worry. Secondly, Trust the Lord for your longevity. He has numbered your days. God provides for us. So Jesus says it's foolish for us to worry. Verse 27, which of you by being anxious can add a single cubit or another hour to his life? Are you worried you're going to die soon? You're worried you're going to suffer? You're worried you're going to be stuck in a wheelchair debilitating something? Our culture is consumed, absolutely consumed with living longer. I mean, you just scroll the internet, you know, and it's massive amount. Uh, pills, exercise, I, 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 diet, all that. Look at Hebrews 9.27. You've got to know this. It is appointed for men to die how often? Once. You have a day. You have a day. And after that, you're going to face judgment. But your appointment is set. Jesus holds the keys of death in Hades. He's the one. No one dies premature. I don't care if it's an infant. A baby, a teenager, no one dies by accident. No one. It's all appointed. And Jesus tells the crowd, your days are numbered. You're going to die exactly on the day you're intended to die. Exactly. And you've got to rest in that. He says, you can add a single, cubit or a single hour. A cubit is the length of your fingertip to your elbow, 18 inches. And he's saying, are you going to be able to stretch your life by worrying? You're going to be to add another hour to your life by worrying? Understand, it's a medical fact that worrying actually shortens your life. It shortens it. Uh, Charles Mayo of the Mayo Clinic once said, worry affects the circulation, the heart, the glands, the whole nervous system. I have never known a man to die from overwork. I have known many who died of what? Worry. It's foolish to worry. So much so, Jesus not only provides food and cares and oversees our life, but thirdly in your outline, trust the Lord for your clothing since he dresses the flowers. Trust the Lord for your clothing. It says in verse 28, and why are you anxious about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They don't toil, they don't spin, but I say to you that even Solomon in all his glory did not clothe themselves like one of these. But if God so arrays the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he not much more do so for you, O men of little, what? Faith. Now the only real concern, come on, can we be honest? That you 
have and that I have about clothing is style and coordination, right? Color coordination. There are people in this room who actually have a problem and they live for clothing. They live it. There's never enough shoes. There's never enough t-shirts. There's never enough dresses, jewelry, or jeans. We have made as a culture a god out of fashion. All you got to do is go to the mall and look at all the shrines of worship. They're called display windows, right? (laughs) You know, that's what they are. Now, some of you in this room are just kind of mocking me right now because you don't care about clothing at all. And we know, okay? (laughs) We do. (laughs) Personally, I hold to the Gildna Radner view of clothing. I wear what doesn't itch, okay? That's the key. But it's true, there are days, there, there are some young, young moms here, and my wife included, that are so stressed out, they're delighted just to know they've got their underwear on today, and that makes it a great day, okay? But we're not really worried <laughs> about clothing. We're not really worried about that. But in the first century, oh my, having the resources to make clothes or buy clothes and stay warm was a real source of anxiety. And Jesus says to them, don't worry about it. Now, let's translate it. They're worried about clothing. You go, I'm not worried about that. But what are you worried about? So, your kids? Your finances? Your health? If you're single, who am I going to marry? So now you feel their pain. The things that we worry about, that was, when he brought that up, that was the same kind of like, (gasps) breath-catching that you have over those issues and more. So Christ commands, look at how God dresses the flowers. Look what he says. Flowers don't require clothing. They don't need a needle and thread. They don't. In fact, flowers are fantastically delicate, beautiful, intricate. Now, you can be a real man and appreciate flowers, but they don't require purchasing You don't sew them, you don't design them, you don't assemble them, you don't do anything. God dresses them. Now what's amazing, verse 29, what does he say? Even the super wise, super rich. Now again, Solomon is at the height of the United Kingdom. This is now worldwide, Israel is famous. Israel is on the top of the pile. And Solomon is so drippy in his dress that he could never dress up as magnificently, though, as incredible as it was, as a flower. Verse 30, God so arrays the grass of the field. An array there is to robe. He dresses the field. He, he clothes the field. And if the Lord robes the flowers of the grass as magnificently as he does, won't he clothe his own children? Come on. You're way more important than grass. Look at verse 30 again. The grass and the flowers which are alive today and tomorrow is what? Thrown into the furnace. And you know the illustration of this because we live here and on the 15 freeway you can go north and in certain springs the hills are just bursting what? With orange flowers. Takes your breath away, causes traffic jams and accidents. It's so magnanimous. It's it's eye-bugging, jaw-dropping, awesome. Five weeks later, what is it? Burned to a crisp. They're all gone, and now a massive fire hazard. 
That's exactly what he's saying. If God would do that to the fields, and they used dried flowers, and they still today use dried flowers to start fires, okay, in the furnace, so to speak. If he would do that with just a, a temporary field, you know, once every, every once in a while in a spring for four weeks, is he not going to take care of you? Come on. He will, verse 30, do so much more for you. His made in his image, died for you, eternal child. If he's going to lavish the beauty of the hills, will he not lavish you with what you need? Don't worry. Don't give in to anxiety. Don't fret. Don't lose sleep. Would you admit how many in the room have lost sleep from worry? Can I see your hands? Put them up. There you go. I, I sometimes worry about you. And I'm laying there in bed. You know what my argument is when I'm, when I'm worried about you, some, some situation or some circumstance? When I do, I, I'm sitting there going, this is wrong. The whole time, I shouldn't be worried, Right? Because God's, what? In control. He's sovereign. He loves you. He loves me. He's going to take care of it. This is his church. It's not my church. But I'm laying there having the theological argument. Right? Anybody with me? No, no, no. This is not right. But I'm battling with it. So feel the weight of what Jesus is saying. Trust the Lord for your clothing. Trust the Lord. Not, won't worry. Don't be, at the end of verse 30, a man or woman of little faith. Listen, this is such a pointed statement. You know what he's saying? He's saying when you're worrying, you're not believing the Lord. You're insulting him. You're saying you're not in control. You are. Every time the phrase men of little faith is used is four times in the New Testament, it's always used to describe no trust for food, for clothing, or for our lives. And if you can trust God to save you from your sins, deliver you from Satan, to deliver you and rescue you from eternal torment and hell, and you can trust that he did that work on your behalf, and you've put your faith in him, then Jesus said, surely it should be easy to trust the Lord for a lowly bite to eat and some clothes. You see how ridiculous this is? It's crazy that you can trust God for the great, incredible, universal, changing event of salvation and then worry about whether he'll provide a bite to eat or clothes to wear. It doesn't make any sense, does it to you? If we trust him for that, we've got to trust him for this. Because this is nothing. That was everything. And Jesus makes this clear, fourthly in your outline, trust the Lord since he already knows your need. He already knows your need. Do not be anxious then, verse 31. Do not be anxious. Don't worry. What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? With what will we clothe ourselves? For all these things the Gentiles eagerly seek. For your heavenly Father knows that you need all these things. Does he know? Yes or no? Yes. Again, he instructs you. Don't start worrying about food, clothing, drink, Verse 32, literally, it's the pagans, the non-Christian Gentiles. And you know what they do? They seek their gods over these things. And their idea of seeking, the, the word seeking here in this text, is an all-out passionate desire. They really want their material needs to be met by these gods that they've invented. Interesting enough, sadly, the pagan gods don't know and they don't care. And if they're demonic, are you ready? They don't know, and they really don't care. And again, your Heavenly Father does know, and by implication, He does care about your needs. He knows everything about you, what you think, what you say, what you say in secret. He knows your desires, your imaginations, and He knows your need. Again, look at Psalm 139. It's a passage which just shouts 
the, the omniscience of God. It says, O Lord, thou hast searched me and known me. Thou dost know me when I sit down, when I rise up. Just the most common things. He knows what's going on. Thou dost understand my thoughts from afar. Thou dost scrutinize my path, my lying down. Thou art enemy acquainted with all my ways. Even before there's a word on my tongue, behold, O Lord, thou dost know it. He sees every detail. God is omniscient. He knows it. He knows everything, every need, spoken and unspoken. And the good news is, not only does God know everything, but he cares for you. And that's stated. 1 Peter 5, 7, know this verse, memorize it, don't ever forget it after today. It's a requirement on the patio. Quote this verse. Are ready? It says, cast all your anxiety on him because he what? He cares for you. You know, the Greek actually gives us a little insight. The word anxiety and care are actually the same word. So he's saying, cast all your anxiety on him because he's anxietyed for you. He's telling you, he, he matches, he's more concerned for you. Our car doesn't start, you're out of cash, the kids get hurt, you ruin a blouse, the dog makes a mess. We think and we forget that God knows and that God cares. But we should not what should we do? Number one, do not what? Worry. Number two, the most important, do seek Christ first. <clears throat> Number two, do seek Christ first. Verse 33, but seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, and all these things shall be added to you. Burn this into your soul. Are you ready? As your life is given over to eternal spiritual priorities, God himself will take care of your physical needs. Let me say it again. As you are given over to eternal spiritual priorities, God himself will take care of your physical needs. That's what it says. In contrast to the do not command, do not worry, he says now do, the do command, do seek his kingdom. How do you stop worrying? You continually seek you search, you look, you pursue, you strive for eternal priorities. His kingdom and His righteousness. Now there's a lock locked in here. And MacArthur actually points out, as he starts verse 33, with a contrast, but. And it's better translated, rather. Rather than worrying. Okay, than, like being a pagan. Rather than being of little faith. Rather than worrying about the future, uh, rather than seeking possessions and money, seek first His kingdom. Live for eternal things and trust the Lord to provide. And the word first there is actually the word that actually is first in line. It's the most important priority. One more time. You want to deal with worry, anxiety? You got it? You got to what? Seek Christ. Just the same way as you don't do this, don't do this. The moment you start seeking Christ, you're going to not worry as much. Because you're moving away from it. you got to seek His priorities. And it says here, His kingdom and His righteousness. This is the highest priority, the most important eternal priority. And again, this is a familiar verse that you've quoted a lot, but do you really understand it? I saw some things here and it just totally got me excited. Jesus is talking about salvation, the gospel. He's talking about Christ being our Lord and our Savior. Write that down. Our Lord and our Savior. His kingdom and His righteousness. His kingdom means He's Lord. His righteousness means He's Savior. 
He's talking about trusting Christ alone to save us and provide for us. And instead of living under the rule of the Romans, the Jews wanted to be ruled by their own leaders. And Jesus says, choose to live under my rule. My rule. Notice verse 33. His kingdom. Live under his rule now. And someday we're going to live under his rule for a thousand years on planet earth. Absolutely perfect. And when the Jews present there and they're sitting there listening to the Sermon on the Mount and they hear kingdom, they think rule. Roman rule, Jewish rule, and now Jesus rule. And they think obedience to that rule, submission to that rule, and following that rule. There's an inherent, we're going to obey our Lord here. And Jesus then says, okay, the first thing you're going to pursue is, am I living under the rule of Christ? Am I obeying Him? And am I pursuing that? As you pursue that, you worry less. Second thing is His righteousness. They say, instead of, and this crowd has got to hear this, and you need to hear it. Instead of trying to be right with God through their own righteousness, working their way to heaven, trying to be good enough so God will be pleased with them, even Christians or pseudo-Christians who come to Christian churches fall into that. They think, well, if I just live good enough and I clean up my life, God will accept me. That's not what he's talking about here. He says, don't do that. If you live that way, that's the wrong way to live. The so-called righteousness where you're following the oral traditions or you're following the, the Christianity that you've gotten kind of flavor of, Jesus strongly calls his listeners and you to live by whose righteousness? Say the pronoun. Whose? His. His righteousness, not yours. Do you see in this now? Seeking his righteousness. Now listen, this is an incredible sermon, and he is debunking the false religion of his day. And so what he's doing here is they forgot that Abraham was made righteous by faith. By faith. And they're trying now to keep all those rules to make themselves righteous, to be good enough, and to gain God's acceptance, and to make a place in heaven for themselves. And you've got to be perfect, though, to make it happen. Absolutely 100% perfectly righteous, and just one word, one bad thought, one wrong attitude condemns you to hell forever. And if you think, well, I can work it out somehow, your entire nature is corrupt with sin. You are saturated with sin. Me too. Saturated. And Jesus is teaching you, no one will get right with God on their own efforts. You can't be perfectly righteous. God's not going to accept you. God must give you His righteousness. He, he must do the work to forgive you and to cleanse you and to save you. He's got to justify you so you can stand in God's presence. And this is what Jesus did on the cross. Well, on the cross, Jesus took all the punishment for the sins of His children upon Himself. All of it. All of God's wrath was poured out against Christ on the cross for the sins of his children. And when you exchange all that you are for all that he is, when you say, my life is yours, and it's meant in faith, and you're seeking to turn from sin, then his righteousness then can cover you. And when it covers you, it makes you perfect in your standing before God now and forever. You're in a perfect robe of righteousness because it's not your righteousness. It's whose righteousness? His righteousness. That's why this verse is so vital, and that pronoun is so very important. He's telling you that when he gives you his perfect righteousness, you can stand perfect before God now and forever. Not because of what you did, but because of what? What Jesus did. 
His righteousness. And Jesus is telling us that if you submit to His rule alone and trust in His righteousness alone and make us right with God as we depend on Him as our Lord, His kingdom, and Savior, His righteousness, He will provide all other needs like food, clothing, life. He promises at the end of verse 33. What's he say? He promises. And all these things shall be what? Added to you. Those are going to be given. You're in Christ. You don't have to worry about where you're going to get your food, your clothing, fear for your lives. Jesus says, verse 34, what's he say? Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow. For tomorrow will what? It's going to take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. And Jesus says, don't worry about the future. The future is going to have its own trouble. Just wait until you get there, get the trouble. Listen, C.H. Spurgeon said this. I think Corey Tenboom said this a lot. They said this, anxiety does not empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It only empties today of, of its strength. It doesn't, it doesn't empty tomorrow of its sorrows. It just robs you today of the strength you need. There's going to be trouble for you in the future. If you're a pessimist, you're a conspiracy theorist, you're right, okay? But that's as far as it goes because you've got a heavenly father who will take care of you and he'll provide not all your wants but all your needs. And as you pursue him as your Lord, his kingdom, and pursue him as your Savior, his righteousness, all these things were added to you. Therefore, don't worry. Don't worry. If you're worrying, stop it. And how do you stop it? Start seeking his kingdom, his purposes. That's the number one way. So to please the Lord now, he wants you to respond in an unusual way. I've given you just some application. Listen, when I do this on Sundays, this is only some of the application. There's so much more application that's found in the text. We're just highlighting a few things. So letter A in your outline, remind yourself daily, God knows what's going on. God knows what's going on. He's in control with you, your church, your city, your state, your nation, your world. And if you're depressed over the news, you don't believe that God is sovereign. If you're stressing over a relationship tension, you forgot who's in charge. Trust God's character whenever you're tempted to worry. Whoever and whatever makes you anxious, say it out loud to yourself. His promises are guaranteed. His providence is loving. His provision is certain. He cares for you. Every time you worry, every time I worry, I hate saying this, but Jesus said, you have little faith, and so he said it. You're attacking the character of God every time you worry. You're saying, I don't believe you. You're not in control. You don't care. You're not in charge every time. You're not believing him. You're saying, God, you're not big enough, powerful enough, loving enough to care about what's happening in my life. And yet, 1 Peter 5, 7, again, one more time, cast all your anxiety upon you because he cares for you. Letter B, readjust your understanding of wealth. Readjust your understanding of wealth. Biblical wealth is having more food than you can eat, more shelter than you need, and more clothing than you could ever possibly wear. Everyone in this room is wealthy. We're a wealthy nation. We have to readjust our understanding of wealth. And you need to understand that your possessions, your money, are not yours. You're stewards. You're stewards. You're not going to take any of it. No money, no thing to heaven at all. Okay, so what are you worried about? The Lord's going to take care of you. He's going to take care of your kids. He's going to take care of his church. Now listen, listen to this. When there are needs that you become aware of around you, 
The Lord doesn't require you to provide others with wealth. That's the lie of our society right now. It does not do that. But He does call upon you to provide others, especially believers, with food, clothing, and shelter. Or to contribute to that. Do you understand that? To contribute to that. But you're not supposed to give others wealth, but you give them what they need, which is food, clothing, and shelter. As best you can or contribute to that. And you too are to be content with food, clothing, and shelter. What's he say in 1 Timothy 6, 8? And if we have food and covering, with these we shall be what? Content. Letter C. Examine your own heart over money and material things. Christ just said, where your treasure is, there your heart is also. What he's saying is that I could tell a lot about what's going on in your heart by where your treasure is. Where is your treasure? So, can I look at two pieces of your equipment one more time? Look at your calendar, look at your budget or your banking statement, and what do those tell you about your heart? When your number one focus is God's purposes, God's kingdom, His righteousness, then you will see time invested in service to Christ. When you're pursuing His kingdom, His righteousness, then you'll see a significant amount of money invested into Christ's cause. Is there? It's not your money. God owns everything. Stop holding it like this and hold it like this. Did you know that there is a blessedness to possessing nothing? Think about it. Psalm 24 verse 1, The earth is the Lord's and everything in it, the world and all that is in it. Whose stuff is it? Answer, God's. Uh, very early as a Christian, somebody handed me a book by A.W. Tozer called The Pursuit of God. The second chapter is titled, The Blessedness of Possessing Nothing Changed My Life. I never understood possessions. I never said wealthy people and poor people. I didn't get it. And he just went, man, just went right for the heart and said, look, just, it's all his. Everything you have, even that secret retirement account, it's all his. All of it. You live your life that way, you're going to worry a whole lot less. You really are. Letter D, salvation is God's answer to worry. Salvation is God's answer to worry. Jesus is describing turning to, depending on, trusting him to follow him. Now, please don't put your stuff away because I can hear it when you do it. <laughs> don't, don't invite judgment, all right? So verse 33, <laughs> seek first his kingdom and his righteousness and all these things shall be added to you. When your life is focused on earthly things, you're going to worry. When your life is focused on heavenly things, you're not going to worry as much. When you're really under his rule and you just want his righteousness before God, then you can be more free from the pull of possessions. You just have to come his way. Not trying to earn it by embracing by faith and repentance. You recognize that your sin, you turn from it, and living life your way, and you depend on faith in Christ alone to make you right with God, and once he does, he says he'll take care of you, so there's nothing to worry about. Nothing. George Mueller said it this way, no relation. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith. The beginning of anxiety is the end of faith, but then he says, the beginning of true faith is the end of anxiety. 
Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. We pray that you would use it to change our lives. Maybe that you would take your word and begin the process of drawing somebody to yourself, that they would see that they aren't related to you, that they're not pursuing eternal things, that they're consumed with this world, and that's all that matters instead of the life that we will live forever in your presence, which will be eternal joy. Lord, give us the eyes to see and the faith to trust you And Father, to live each day knowing it's all yours and we're going to trust you for everything and we'll give you all the glory for what you'll do. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, Amen. Thanks for listening today. Sermon audio from the last three years is available by podcast and a larger archive from Chris Mueller and Faith Bible Church can be found at media.faith-bible.net. And if you would, please leave us a review on iTunes. It helps a lot. Thanks, and have a great day.